So I love it. Uh, I, uh, I think whenever we get to the really hard passages, Dwayne sits in his office. He goes, oh, that's a tough one to talk about. I'm just going to let Chris do it. Um, so, uh, so today we're going to talk about David and Bathsheba. And I'm going to start off by saying, like, if you've got really young kids and um, you're not ready to have that discussion with them yet, we'll talk about it just a little bit. It's not, you know, this is probably like a PG, like, 12, not quite 13, but it's up there, you know. So just, I just want to give that little warning. Um, and, you know, if you are ready to have that conversation, just let them stay in here, and they might ask you some questions after service. Um, we're going to read a, I'm going to read a, a chunk of, of Scripture uh, out of Second Samuel, uh, and just bear with me. And then I want to give a, a few principles from what we're reading um, that I think will help you. And this is really today, I'm just going to share some thoughts on uh, David, Bathsheba, and then what results beca- uh, of that. Um, so let's turn, if you have your Bible, Second uh, Samuel chapter 11 is where we're going to be reading from, and I'll give you a minute, minute to turn there. Um, if uh, you don't have your scripture, or if you don't have your Bible, uh, just listen. Um, I'm an okay reader, and you should be able to understand. Okay. Chapter 11, verse 1 says this, in the spring of the year, the time when the kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbath. But David remained at Jerusalem, so David doesn't go with them. It happened, one late, uh, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was, a ver- was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is that not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Oops. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house and with, uh, with all the servants of the Lord and did not go down to the house. So he's trying to get Uriah to go sleep with Bathsheba so that he could cover up this great sin he just committed. When they told David Uriah did not go down to the house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark of Israel and Judah dwells in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in open field. Shall I go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live, as you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also and tomorrow and I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on the couch with the servants of of his Lord, but did not go down to his house. So in the morning David wrote a letter to Joab, the commander of of the military, and sent it by hand of Uriah. So he gives it to Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah at the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there, there were valiant men. By the way, just a quick note, valiant men here is, is Ishkael. This is the same word for women, Ishkael, the noble woman. We've talked about that before in, in the book of Ruth and Proverbs. So the valiant men, these are the best men of their enemies, okay? Uh, so Joab was besieging the city. He assigned uh, Uriah to this place. 
And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of his servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger arises, and if he says to you, Why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know they would shoot uh, from the wall? Who, who killed Abimelech, the son of uh, Jerubasheth? Okay, however you say that. This is a story from the judges, by the way, that he's telling. Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on the wall, like a big rock, on that, in, in, uh, so that uh, Abimelech died at the, uh, Thebes? Why did you go near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So he's basically saying, Joab, go, go tell the king that we lost some men today. And if he gets really mad at you because we got so close to the wall, tell him that Uriah died. You get what he's doing, right? It's called CYA. So the messenger went, and he came and told David all that Joab had, had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. This is what David said. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now the other. Strengthen your attack against him and the city and, the city and overthrow it. And he encouraged him. When the wife of Uriah, notice it doesn't say her name, heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. You think? <laughs> so this is what David, uh, this is what Dwayne left me, right? Awesome. <laughs> right? By the way, I'm not paid. I'm a volunteer. <laughs> so here you have David, and this is his first major sin. He's going to commit two, and we might have time to talk about the second one by the end of this. But I want to talk about five principles you begin to get in this story. There's, there's five principles, and one of them, we're going to talk about the elephant in the room. Today, we're going to talk about uh, extramarital affairs. I know that's not a, a subject everybody likes to talk about. I mean, I'm sure all you guys, you know, you're at Starbucks, like, hey, let's talk about affairs. That's just not what we do. We like to pretend like it doesn't happen. But affairs are ravaging our culture. And if you look at David and sexual sins, the sexual sins of this world, I would say in the United States, it is just downright uh, just ravaging, especially our youth. I mean, you can't turn anywhere in our culture and not just be totally taken by sexual, by sexual desire or by sexual sin and temptation that our world's putting in front of us. About, uh, oh, I'd say 15 years ago, a group of guys that were in my accountability group, we decided to go to Vegas because that was a smart move at the time, I guess. <laughs> so we go to Vegas and we just thought, you know, we'll, we'll go to Vegas, it's cheap, we can go like swimming, they had wild waves down on the strip and all that, we'll go swimming and all that, but you know, this is my accountability group, so we're all okay, okay, can't look at the posters, and, and we, you know, it's been a while, I hadn't been to Vegas in years, and so we land and we're like, I realized that this is, this is not going to work. There isn't, a post, there isn't a taxi cab that doesn't try to seduce you in some way. you got posters everywhere. So we, I remember it was so bad, we thought, okay, 
we're going to walk from our hotel to the, the swim park, look down at the ground. Don't look around. That, we really said this. And we're looking down at the ground, and there's pictures of women laying on the ground on these cards they hand out. I mean, you couldn't go anywhere without totally being seduced. And that's the culture we live in. And it's just getting worse and worse and worse. When I first got married, um, my father-in-law, in, on Super Bowl Sunday, we'd go over to his house and we would watch the Super Bowl, right? But my father-in-law had this thing. He wouldn't watch the commercials. Now, I go watch football. Half the reason I go watch the Super Bowl, because it's usually not a team I care about, is, because I'm a Seahawks fan, is I, I'm there to watch the commercials, right? And so every, commer- every time the commercials would come on, he would turn it to like this music channel they were playing Christian gospel music or something. And I had some friends with me, and they're like, if he turns it again, I'm walking out. You know what I mean? But, but he's like, no way, I'm not letting that stuff in my house. It is all around us. It is everywhere. It is the elephant in the room. And I want to talk about that this morning. I don't want to avoid it. But David's first problem, one of his biggest problems, and Solomon, who will be his son later, this is a massive problem for Solomon, is, is that he has been designed by God to be attracted to the other sex. And guess what? I would say 95% of you in this room are designed by God to be attracted to the other sex, right? I mean, seriously, why else would your wife have married you? I mean, think about that. I mean, I think about what my wife has to go through. Okay, this is my four days a week. I have two eggs, two pieces of bacon, two pieces of toast. That's my routine. The other day, I pull out an egg carton, I open it up, there's one egg. And I go, whoa, we can't have this. All right, there needs to be two eggs, you need to eat an even number of eggs, and my wife goes, are you kidding me? Why would she marry me? I mean, who would marry this? I mean, seriously. Well, she had to be attracted at some point when I was younger. It's like bait on a fish. On a fishing pole, you know, once you get them hooked. But that's what we are, we are designed to be attracted. And the silly thing, and this happens, and I just want it, men, I, I'm talking to you, but I know this happens to women. In fact, I had a number of women come to me after service. It goes, it's true of women too. But when you get married, doesn't mean you're not attracted to the, other, the opposite sex still. It's not like, oh, I'm married now, I'm immune. I'm not going to be attracted to any other woman. We notice other people. That's the bottom line. Yeah, I mean, we're designed to do that. And the problem is, a lot of Christians think you can't be, I mean, a lot of people, like, even me, I, I used to think, I can't be attracted to anyone else. I can't be. But then a guy was disciple me, that's not true. That's how you're designed. The problem is when you act on it. When you act on it. And so, I just say this as a, as a say, hey, you're going to be, you're going to notice other people. You just will. But you don't act on it. You don't act on it. Jesus says you don't even act on it in your mind. You don't act on it. And so here's David, he's walking on the roof, and guess what? He notices, he is designed, and he's going to notice. But the problem is he acts on it. And so principle number one, there are always consequences for our sin, affairs included. And I just, I mean, we don't talk about this very much, but I got to tell you, um, when I first got into chaplaincy, I was not prepared for this. I will never forget, it was a firefighter, he walked in, he goes, hey, I need to talk to you. And he's telling me, he's like, hey, I had an affair, what do I do? And I'm just sitting there like, oh my word. But here was the crazy part. 
He, he kept saying in the meeting, I love my wife. I love my wife. I can't believe I did this. I love my wife. And I'm sitting there half confused. I'm like, well, if you love your wife, why'd you have an affair? And, you know, I'm just sitting there and we're having this conversation. And he's just, he's in anguish and pain. And I didn't know what to do. I, I mean, I'm like, you're going to have to go tell your wife. And then I thought, well, maybe that's not the right thing to do. Maybe, maybe I don't, I'm not a counselor, but it's his fault he came to me. So, I mean, that's the advice you're getting. And I thought, well, that was weird. This guy loved his wife, but had an affair. That's weird. Then I had another one. And then another one. I have had over half a dozen men come in and tell me how they affair, and they all say the same thing. I love my wife. I can't believe I did this. And I couldn't reconcile this. I couldn't figure this out. And then one day, the Lord said, hey, Chris, I didn't stop you from being attracted to other women. I don't want you to act on it. Because when you act on it, then all of a sudden, you've you realize what you had in your wife, in your husband, and you regret it. The problem is we take, people, we take our spouses for granted. We do. I mean, I take my wife for granted. She, she doesn't care that I'm a weirdo about two eggs being in the carton <laughs> and other weird things that go with that. I talk to myself in the shower. I have full-on <laughs> talking sessions in the shower. She'll walk in and just like, well, he's a weirdo, but hey, I married him. <laughs> We take the people we love for granted. And when there's a chance we lose them because we do something boneheaded, then all of a sudden, guess what? We're like, oh my gosh, I love my wife. This does not become any more real to me than whenever I'm sitting with a husband who's losing his wife to cancer. It doesn't. Because for the first time, and the husband realizes, oh my word, Someone I love so deeply and cannot live without. Someone I, I wanted to spend the rest of my life with, they're leaving. And I won't get to spend any more time on this earth and this time with her. I'm just, I've been walking with a family, one of my dearest friends, and Krista Tan just went home to be with the Lord. And there's no anguish that can express because of the sorrow of the missing fellowship. Do you think if I would have gone to Krista's husband at that point and said, hey, you know what? Would you want to have an affair? You know, go have an affair with someone? He'd have been like, are you crazy? I want to be with her. I want to be with her. And every time, it's amazing. I've been with men who've had affairs, and when they get back together, I said, how's it? We love each other more than we ever have. Why? Because we don't take each other for granted. It's crazy. And the point of this is that you've got to remember what you have. And not think it's, it's greener on the other side. That's, that's what we do. And i got to just bring this up. And I know we don't talk about this very often. And this is what Dwayne left me with. But it's, this is so important to remember. There are consequences for our sin. In fact, guess what's going to happen as David uh, goes, goes before and there's consequences to his sin because what we're going to read about in just a minute is that David is confronted, and the Lord basically says the child that is conceived, he's going to die. There's actually other things. By the way, David's going to get kicked out of his kingdom for a while, and the dude who hits his own son kicks him out of the kingdom, and his own son is going to sleep with his wives openly. I mean, it's crazy if you read the story. We're not going to read it today because I'm hoping you all like, oh, I want to read the rest of the story and just go home and read it because there is so much in here. It's amazing. We don't have time. But there are consequences to our sin. I can guarantee you. Guarantee it. 
Uh, one, I remember one of the guys, one time when he told me he was having an affair, what had happened, he was walking in, and, and his son was in the garage. And he had just got back from where he, he was not following the Lord, and, and his son says, hey, Dad, where have you been? And he didn't know what to do. He immediately lost it, went to his knees and cried because he realized he had failed his son too. Who wants that pain? You know, there's a passage Randy Alcorn used to quote. It's in Proverbs. The person who follows after the prostitute, the person is like, like cattle going to the slaughter. I, I used to get to, I've seen cattle be slaughtered. That's not fun. I don't want to be the cow. I don't want to be the bull. That, there are consequences to our sin. And I just say it this morning, just as plainly as I can. When the summer's coming, the summer is here. It, it's here. And, and what happens in the summertime? I call it transformers. It's where the women and the men, they start dressing a little bit more noticeably. And all I'm going to do is just give you a warning. Women, men, men too. I was told this several times by several women in the foyer. Dress in a way that honors God because you don't want your brothers and sisters to fall. I don't think I have that problem, you know. Um, <laughs> I could probably make you look away really fast. But that's what we do. I, I just give that. I just want to be as blunt as I can, as direct as I can this morning. Because David was a man after God's own heart, and it took him to the point where he killed a man. Do you get it? Principle number two, besides uh, there are always consequences for our sins, is that we should always keep ourselves humble. Pride will always destroy. Always. Robbie Zacharias has a theory that he's expressed many times, and I actually, when I first heard it, I was kind of like, I'm not sure about that. But then as I've lived life and worked with men, especially men, I've noticed, I'm like, this is the case. I get to work with a number of pastors uh, and ministry leaders around the country uh, through my job, and I've met a lot of them. And you walk in the room, and, and I mean, there are some where you walk in, and there is more ego than, and, and these, are, these are people that people look up to and stuff. And when I first got into ministry, I'm like, oh my gosh, that guy's prideful. Now, not to say later on the Lord really showed me some stuff, but anyway, um, we'll get to that in a minute. But, 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 I am, but Robbie says this. He says, it's interesting when a pastor falls. We just had another one fall not too long ago, we think, but we're not sure. But this happens. It happens because men are attracted to women, and, and, and pastors are just as vulnerable as anybody else, and they think, they think to themselves, well, I'm a pastor. It's not going to happen to me. Pride. And then it happens, and they fall. Robbie's theory is this, based on a, a, he had a conversation with a friend of his who went through this, a very famous author, by the way. And the author said this, the Lord saw my pride, and the most gentle way he could really take me down was by having me fall in an affair. And I'm convinced. I, I believe that's true. I think the Lord's like, pride will destroy you. I need to bring you to humility. I need to show you you're not all that. I really, I, I think it's true. And we, especially in our culture, I mean, we live in, I mean, we're Happy Valley, man. We got it made, right? I don't have a Mercedes like a lot of you guys do, but I got a pretty fancy Toyota Camry hybrid. I mean, you know, I, I drive around in downtown Portland. I'm like, man, when I have to meet Tony somewhere and he's driving his big truck around, I'm like, yeah, dude, you're not as cool as me. I got a hybrid. I fit in Portland. You don't. You belong in Malala. <laughs> but this is how 
We are. I mean, we're prideful individuals. And I am convinced that pride will destroy you. A couple years ago, a group of us went to Dallas, and Jim Peterson, who discipled me for a number of years, presented something that really revolutionized my life, and I want to share it just as a principle tonight or today, so just get a, a hint. We call it the right-turn-left-turn model. And I want, to watch, I want you to watch this. This is what happens. So we have a scriptural truth, like don't lie, you know, don't cheat, don't steal, don't have an affair, whatever it is. You, you read something in the Scripture, you're like, oh, my gosh. How many of you have ever read something in the Scripture and you realize your life does not align with what the Scripture is telling you to do? Come on, raise your hand. Anybody not raising their hand? I just need to meet with you afterwards. We'll find something. All right. So what happens is you start to wrestle with the Scripture. And the, and the, the Scripture actually uses this language, this, this entanglement, this wrestling that happens with you as you read the Scripture and you realize your life doesn't align that way. So there's one way you can handle this, and that is the way that most of us do it, especially us type A personalities. We look at it and we say, you know what, I'm going to go, I'm going to take a, a, a right turn here or a left turn here, and I'm going to self-discipline myself through it, right? Like one time I'm like, you know what, I weigh a little too much. I am going to lose 40 pounds. That is what I'm going to do. And I don't need help. In fact, you know, I didn't tell anyone I was on a diet. I'm just like, I'm just going to do it. People are, are you on a diet? No, no, I, <laughs> no. No, self-discipline, right? And then, you know, and then, you know, and then what happens is you, you struggle with that thing, and then what you're doing is you're fighting the flesh. This is the Scripture. You're fighting the flesh. And then two things can happen from this, and I want you to notice both are wrong. There's no good way to get out of it when you take the left turn. You either become prideful because you did it, or you become ashamed because you failed. Don't raise your hand, but I bet every one of you in here has experienced that. This is how most of us handle it when we're handling Scripture. Ironically, the Scripture doesn't tell you to handle it this way. The Scripture tells you to take it a different way. It tells you to take the right turn, and here's what it says. You, you wrestle with it, and then the first thing you do is you humble yourself before the Lord and say, Lord, I can't do this. Do you notice that if you do it on your own, self-discipline, you've already, you've already failed? There's no way around it. You're either going to be full of pride or you're going to be full of shame. There's no way around it. So you already failed. It's like a no-win situation. But when you go this way, you say, Lord, I can't do this. I've been swearing my whole life. There is no way I'm going to stop swearing overnight. There's just no way. And here's what's interesting when you do that, and I've experienced it over and over. The Holy Spirit invades your life and says, we got this, buddy. We got this. And then when the Holy Spirit takes your life, you begin to find yourself, you have self-control. Sometimes the desire goes away. That's happened with me. It's happened with a number of friends where the desire just goes away. I don't want to do that anymore. Huh. And you look and you're like, what happened? I didn't do anything. Oh, the Spirit of God working in my life. Huh, it's weird. The New Testament talks about that. Huh, it's kind of weird when you live with the Scripture. And then another truth comes, and it happens over and over. And every one of us, you remember, anytime you experience a struggle, you have two ways you can handle it. Do it yourself or do it with the Lord. Either way, that, that's it. That's the only two options you have. Every time I see a self-help book, I want a lighter. I want to light it on fire. Because <laughs> all self-help books tell you is that I'm full of pride. I don't need help. Now, here's the crazy part about this, and this is the most important part. It is important that you do this in community. It is important that you do this in community. You need to struggle with other people. If you're not telling people your struggles, you got pride. 
There's no way around it. If you think, I got this, I'm not going to tell anyone. Nope, not going to tell anyone. You have pride. It's simple. You don't want to be a prideful person? You don't tell anyone you got pride? You got pride. <laughs> Weird. I mean, just, just think it through. I mean, every time you go in the store, my, my uh, son one time, we were in a, uh, like a, a, a JCPenney's or something, and I needed to find something. Right? I didn't know where it was, had no clue where it was. Do you need any help, sir? No, I got this. <laughs> right? My wife and I are on our honeymoon in London. I have never been to England in my life. We're in London. My wife's like, do you want me to pull out a map? Oh, no, I know where we're going. <laughs> Pride. Pride always destroys. You need a community of people, including your spouse, by the way, where you say, "Hun, I'm struggling with this. You, you know, I'm struggling. I don't know what to do. Let's do this together. You need a group of people. This brings me to principle number three, and that is this. We all need Nathans in our lives. You may be like, where's that coming from? Well, if you continue reading the Scripture, here's what's interesting. So David is, uh, has just committed this atrocity. The Lord's displeased with him. And then arrives on scene in chapter 12, a, a man, a prophet named Nathan. And here's what Nathan says. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich, the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children, it used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one from his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come for him. But he took the poor man's little ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives... The man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. We need Nathans in our lives. we got to have it. I have four gentlemen in my life that will come up and say anything that I need to hear. How many of you have ever, like, you thought back 10 years ago, man, man I was really obnoxious back then. How many of you have ever had, I call them moments of regret, when you're sitting at the stoplight, oh, my gosh, that's such a dork. How many of you have ever regretted, like, your past? But at the time of the past, you didn't realize how big of an idiot you were. You know what's funny is if you had Nathans in your life, you'll know you're an idiot right then. You know, last week, last week I was here, Remember, I have two eggs every morning, or four, four mornings, I have oatmeal, the others. Two eggs, two bacon. So I had my over-easy egg. Yolk must have dripped down right here and got caught right here in my hair. I was here for one full hour talking to people in the foyer. <laughs> one full hour. And then Josh Mays, Josh Mays was out there, and he goes, hey, dude, dude, you got yolk or something right here. You got something right here. I'm like, are you kidding me? Not one of you guys could have said, hey, dude, you got egg on your face, literally. <laughs> Really? Now, your second service, it wouldn't have, I had it washed off by then. First service, though, come on. You need people that will be honest with you and direct. 
in a gentle and loving way, but you need those people. And you got to learn to quit being defensive when they come up to you. That's the key. You know what's interesting is David, as soon as Nathan tells him, this is what makes David a man after God's own heart, what does he immediately do? He immediately begins to repent. What's, it, it, this contrast, by the way, you're about to read a bunch, of, a bunch of kings who don't repent. But David has the humility to say, oh my gosh, I messed up. He didn't justify it. He didn't hire an attorney to pay $200 to her or $200,000 and pretend like it didn't happen. That never happens in our world. But anyway, he didn't try to cover it up. He repented. He repented immediately when his Nathan spoke to him. We all need Nathans in our lives. There's just no way around it. And if you don't have a Nathan in your life, I would just dare say that maybe you have a little bit of pride in your life because that's the only way you do it in community. You have to say, I'm not the man. I don't got this because <laughs> I've fallen so many times. And I know because I meet with people who fall all the time. And I've fallen many times where I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I did that. Last year, you know what my New Year's resolution was? Don't yell at your kids. I broke that like on January 1st. <laughs> and every day since. I don't want to yell at my kids. I really don't. They tell me, tell me it's fear, frustration, and a lack of hope that make you angry. I have a lot of fear, frustration, and lack of hope in my kids. I don't know what to do. But I've just given it to the Lord. It's no longer a goal. I'm like, Lord, I can't do this you got to take this from me. Ironically, this leads to number two, or number four. The sins of the father follow to the son. My dad and I have the same shortcomings. I don't have all his shortcomings, and he doesn't have all mine, but I have a few of his shortcomings. Ironically, if you put all my brothers, I have three, uh, there's three of us, two brothers, if you put us all together, we all have various aspects of my father and my mother's shortcomings. The sins of the father follow him. Here's an interesting thing. David's, uh, the, the, David's son, Absalom, he's slated to be the next king of Israel. But he gets really angry at uh, one of the other brothers because, uh, and you'll read about this with Tamar, and there's this, uh, he gets really angry and uh, he kills a lot of people in his anger and all this, just like David. David has this sense of, like, justice right now, and I'm going to take anyone out who isn't there. And that follows to uh, Absalom. By the way, Absalom, ironically, is the one who's going to push David out of the city for a while. David's going to be out there, and Absalom's the one who's going to sleep with David's wives openly. Um, this, is, this is foretold when Nathan, uh, as a consequence to David's sin. But interestingly enough, the next son that comes... He has with Bathsheba, so he marries Bathsheba. They have a child. This child dies, and at the repentance, what David is doing is he goes and is like, Lord, save the son. He truly repents, and he's like, Lord, just say, don't let this child die, but the child has to die. Okay, we're going to come back to that in a minute. But then the next child that Bathsheba has is Solomon, and Solomon's the one who becomes a king. Ironically, Solomon has David's same sin. You want to know what it is? He marries too many women. Which too, what's too many? More than one right? He has over 700 wives, it tells us. Most of them are foreigners. 
This is actually, it's that very particular sin because he begins to follow the foreign gods of all his wives that leads to the, the, the consequence from the Lord that Judah and Israel will be split into two kingdoms. There's a consequence to all sin. The sins of the father move on to the son. It's all the way in the Scripture. Solomon, just like David, didn't have it under control with the women. Right? So, the sins of the father follow the son. But here's the great truth, the fifth, the fifth thing we find from this. We find our hope in a Redeemer. Now, we're not going to have time to read all this, but we're, I, I left enough time in this service. The first service, I didn't have enough time, so I just kind of rushed over this. But this is really cool. What's interesting is all the way through this narrative, there are glimpses, I call them glimpses, of hope of the Messiah coming. Okay, why is David, most of us when you hear like, okay, he slept with a dude's wife and then killed the dude, okay, essentially. Why did the Lord let him live? I mean, have you seen what the Lord does to other characters who do like similar things? There's a dude that touches the ark and dies instantly for touching the ark. All right? This dude slept with a wife, impregnated her, and then killed the husband. What's going on? God's like, well, my seed's coming through David. I can't take him out. He's my chosen one. He's my anointed one. And I, because of his sin, I'm not going to stop, I'm not going to block the blessing for all humanity. Therefore, there will be a consequence, a great consequence. But I'm going to redeem him. By the way, his second great fall comes at the very end of, of Samuel, 2 Samuel, right before you get to Kings. His next fall is he starts counting how big his army is, basically. He counts how big his troops are. How many troops do I got? And he was there in Deuteronomy, they're specifically forbidden from counting the troops when they become king. Because the Lord's like, I want you to know that I did it, not the size of your muscles. How many of you have ever like counted something just to make yourself feel good? How many of you have ever like, oh, I got this much money in my savings account. Oh, we're good. Or some other false hope, right? And that's what David did, essentially. A sense of pride. And the Lord basically like, that's prideful. You think it's you doing it. It's me. That was his second great sin. By the way, in that same instance, he repents immediately when he's confronted about it. That's the heart of David. So we find our hope in the Redeemer. Ironically, David's sin is atoned for by the firstborn son of Bathsheba, but Bathsheba's son has to die. Hmm. There are a lot of stories all the way through Scripture, by the way, where the firstborn is dying, foreshadowing or glimpsing the fall of God's only begotten firstborn son, who would die for all of us. All the way through the narrative, you see redemption for the same sins that everybody else would have died for, David repents and the Lord redeems. And that's our great hope. This is how I can sit with my friend whose wife is passing away and say, you know, it's going to suck for us for a little bit because we're going to miss hanging out. But we have a Redeemer. And David 
knew there was a Redeemer, and he quickly repented. He quickly repented. Just like the king of Nineveh, when Jonah came, quickly repented, and Nineveh was saved. All the way through the narrative, you see God glimpses of God's redemption plan coming. And therefore, we know we have a Redeemer. We know this. So here's all I got to say. This is it. It's a simple message today. All of us can sin at any time. Most of you don't need to be told that. God loves you regardless. Repent, turn to Him, surround yourselves by a community of believers, and say, let's go do this together. That's what God wants. That's all that this, the story's about. Interestingly enough, if you read the whole text, what it, what's the story about? It's a, a story about David's repentance, his repentant heart. And so as we pray and we close, and I just want to note, I'm three minutes early, so I'm going to just do a long prayer. I just want you to think about as we pray, I just want you to think about what is it in my life like, who could be my Nathan? What is it in my life, Lord, that I need to quit trying to self-discipline myself through and just release it to you? Lord, help me. Help protect my thoughts. Help protect my action. All those things. You just need to turn over to the Lord. That's what, let's pray that to, right now. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you, and we know that you're a God who answers prayer, that you love us, that you have nothing but the best for us, but we have to have a perspective that has you as the Lord of our life, truly. We are not the lords of our life. You are the Lord of our life. Help us know that, see that, remember that. Father, be with us as we grow in our faith. Help us not to try to do it on our own, fight the flesh and have pride or shame, but we always just come in humility and say, Lord, help me do this. Lord, help us surround ourselves. Get rid of the fear that's in us that we don't want people to know who the real us is. Lord, give us the confidence knowing that the real us is the same as the real them and that we'll all discover together that all we truly desire is just to serve you in holiness, in love, in gentleness, patience, kindness. Lord, protect us. Protect our minds. Protect the men and the women in this room from sexual sins. Give a covering over this, this congregation now, Lord, to protect us as we go into the summertime months. Lord, protect us. In Jesus' name, amen.